The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Habakkuk, we said last week as we began this study, it is a rare look at the private diary of a confused preacher. And that's where we're at again this morning, a confused preacher. Uh, We looked last week at the big picture, and what has happened is the the prophet Habakkuk has looked around at his situation, his culture, his people, and it's a mess. It's a mess. And so as he looks at the situation of the world, he then laments. To cry is human, but to lament is different. We learned last week that it's biblical, it's honest, and it's redemptive. Mark Rogop says this, Lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promises of God. And we talked much about this last week. I just want to quickly review and then we'll get right into the next portion of scripture. Lament turns to God in faith. The fact is, as we look around in our own lives and we struggle and we have questions and we have anguish and pain, The idea of turning to God is in itself an act of faith. We turn to him because we believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. We believe this morning that he is sovereign, that he is powerful, that he is faithful. And so in lament, we turn in faith to our God. And then we bring our complaints. We're honest with him. And the The complaint is not to vent and to stay there, but to express. Express our deep emotions, express our questions, our concern, our confusion, and to express and to move forward. Not just to complain, but to express and move forward. We then move forward by asking. And the asking is in accordance to the character of God, which assumes this morning that God's people know Him and know his character, that he is the God of all comfort. He is the God of mercy. He's the God of truth. He is the God of righteousness. He is the God of justice. He is the holy God. And we come and we ask in accordance to his character. And what happens is this moves us from the why of life to the who. And God becomes more and more prominent in our eyes and in our situation. And just like Habakkuk, nothing has changed. But he gets a new vision of the God who is. It anchors our soul in God and what he has done. Which ultimately should turn us to trust at the very least and then to praise. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to praise. And my brother and sister this morning, we must embrace lament. Too often in our lives we, we, we give this impression that we've got it all together, that life is great, we have no worries, we have no problems. If it was any better, there'd be two of me. And the truth is we suffer, we struggle, we have pain, we have questions. And too many of us have small prayers. We don't take the time and effort and energy to walk through this lament, to unburden our souls to find true peace and rest and even praise in the midst of our tragedy and grief. If you've been in the faith long enough 
and you've walked through this lament, you know exactly what I'm talking about this morning. As we work our way through with our turning, with our complaints, with our asking, we end up in a place where we can truly praise our God that he is faithful and he is good, even if I don't understand or see where he's moving. This lifts others in the same manner as we enter into their grief. And Church of Christ, we should be able to do this with one another. We do have brothers and sisters who struggle and who suffer and have questions, and we should enter in into that lament as well. And we should do it corporately as a church. I so appreciate the prayer last week that was truly a lament, and we do that corporately together. And so that was the big picture. That was the helicopter view. And now this morning we will slow way down. And it's only appropriate since it's cold outside that we would just slow down and enjoy our time now and focus on the first four, actually five verses of chapter one. Here's what the scripture says. The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. O Lord, how long shall I cry? And thou wilt not hear, even cry unto thee violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. Therefore, the law is slacked, and judgment does never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous. Therefore, wrong judgment proceeds. I want you to notice just three things about this lament. First, he says, Lord. And if you notice in the text, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's Yahweh. That is the covenant name of God. He is calling on the God who bound himself to his people in covenant. Habakkuk doesn't just know the creator of the universe. He knows this God of covenant. And so he cries out because he knows this God has bound himself to his people. He then says, how long? How long? It is a cry for help. He looks and his nation is ruined. They are morally bankrupt. There is violence, injustice, abuse, greed, exploitation, and lawlessness. And I know that we can never fathom that in the world that we live in today. But this is what he sees. He's considering the destructive behavior of his own people. Not somewhere out there, but as he looks around at his own people, this is what he sees. And he cries out. And then he says, why? God, why are you doing nothing? God, why are you tolerating all that I see, this evil? Why are the wicked prospering? And we get a sense from this prayer of his confusion, his pain, his anxiety. It is real, palpable. Now, just several observations about our text this morning. Number one, I want you to notice in what we just read that Habakkuk, is not shaking off the world. That's inconceivable. And yes, I know what the word inconceivable means, and I will keep on using it this morning. Habakkuk is not looking to shake off the world. He doesn't want to escape the world he inhabits. He knows right now it's bad. He looks around, it's not good. But he's not looking to escape. 
we live in a world today of escapism. Everybody just wants out. They want to feel no pain. They want to feel no suffering. And so our world turns to alcohol. Our world turns to drugs. Our world turns to gaming and social media and endless hours of scrolling just to escape constant entertainment. Why? Because we want to escape. We don't want to deal with reality. That's not what he's doing here. And we as believers need to be careful. He is not crying out to escape and shake off this world that he inhabits. And sometimes we do the very same things. We can even do this in our eschatology. Some of us are looking around like, hey, this world stinks. It's terrible. But I don't care. Jesus is coming. And so I'm listening for the Trump and not Donald, but the real Trump the trumpet of God, and I'm just out of here, so I couldn't care less. I'm gone. I'm just going to escape. But I would say to you this morning, those of you who don't care, who just want to escape, you and I should care. We should care. Theologian uh, Carl F. Henry said this, the early church did not say, look what the world is coming to. But they said, look what has come to the world. And the early church understood that the world is the world, but they have the hope that Jesus Christ had come. And may I remind you, dear brother and sister, this morning, where we find ourselves in our situation, in our society, and in our own lives, and our suffering and struggles, we were born for such a time as this. God has not made a mistake. We should not be looking to shake off this world. This generation of saints is responsible for this generation of sinners. And what I mean by that is this. We should be the people on this planet as beggars telling other beggars where we found the bread of life. He is not trying to escape, nor is he trying to isolate himself. Listen, if you're part of this church, you know how important community is to us. That's why you're out in a parking lot right now. That's why I'm standing in the snow right now. Because we know community means something. We know we're together. We know the church is meeting together physically. But we must be careful. Sometimes in our Christian church, with our Christian friends, with our Christian camps and our Christian concerts and our Christian entertainment and our Christian schools and colleges, we, we tend to become isolated. We don't even know believers anymore. This is not our call. We are certainly called to be light. And may I remind you that light is distinct. It is distinct from darkness. It looks nothing like darkness. And part of the darkness is in the world today is because believers aren't being the light that we're to be. But as light is distinct from darkness, we should be. But salt, that we're also called to be, engages. And it engages our world. It engages where we live to preserve, to bring flavor, to bring an appetite for the things of God. And this is our calling. Habakkuk is not looking to shake off the world. That's inconceivable for him. He wants his world to be delivered. That's what he wants. 
The cry of how long is redemptive. It's redemptive. Oh, God, here I am in this world. How long? Habakkuk knows that all of creation, as was read this morning, is groaning. It's in bondage. It's waiting. All of creation for liberation. And for you and I this morning, it is not just, um, hey, I'm going to heaven. The fact is that we are to bring heaven to earth. Is this not the prayer that Jesus told us? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as you and I live on this planet as kingdom people, should not the idea of that kingdom that Christ describes in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 be spilling over in all of our lives and all that we meet? And so the truth of the matter is this. Habakkuk is not trying to shake off the earth. That's inconceivable. He wanted his earth and his world to be redeemed. And that's what we look for. Secondly, notice this. That in what we read, we find that suffering is inevitable. Suffering is inevitable. We in the West think somehow we're in a privileged caste. That nothing bad or hard or tragic or painful should ever happen to us. That it should be good constantly. And, and that is fueled even in the church with this prosperity gospel that says God's plan for every believer's life is to be healthy and wise, that all of your wildest dreams will come true. But my friend this morning, that idea of a privileged cast or the prosperity gospel are both false assumptions and they're false gospels. Habakkuk was righteous. There was still a remnant in Judah that was righteous. And yet, they were suffering. And they would suffer. You and I, my friend, in the West, and as people of God, must develop a theology of suffering. Theologian D.A. Carson said this, the truth of the matter is that all we have to do is live long enough and we will suffer. That is life in a fallen world today. And the Apostle Paul, the great missionary of the church, uh, he knew that. He suffered. He suffered beating and mocking and scourging. He suffered imprisonment. He suffered shipwreck. He suffered sickness and ailment. He suffered being betrayed. And that's what he was talking about in, in Romans 8 when he says, Listen, I reckon, I consider that all of the suffering, all of it, is not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Paul understood that as believers, we do suffer. We will suffer. But what he says is this, as I look at my suffering, and he minimizes it, when I compare the glory that is coming, this means nothing. The best is yet to come. And for you and I as believers, as we suffer in Christ and for Christ, God wastes nothing. I heard a preacher last year say that when we go through the, the glory of our life and the suffering and the pain and the heartaches and the confusion and the questions, we must 
see the glory, to see above all of it that God is at work. He's still on the throne. Suffering is inevitable, but God wastes nothing. Thirdly, this morning, notice this, that all is seen by the infinite one. All is seen by the infinite one. In, in our text, in verse number five, it's the first time that the Lord now speaks back to Habakkuk. And here's what he says. Behold ye among the heathen, and regard, and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work. And what he is saying to Habakkuk is this. As you look around, I know you think I've forgotten. I know you think I don't see. I know you think I'm unaware. But he says, I am aware, I do see, and I do know. The infinite one does see. In, in 1991, I was about 22 years old, and I was uh, reactivated into the military for Desert Storm. I was part of a, a ready reactionary force on 24-hour alert in Germany, waiting. We were the second wave that was supposed to go in into Iraq, and uh, the, the first wave was sufficient. We were never called. But I remember sitting in a, in a billet with about 100 men on cots, and we were watching the news. The air war had just started. And later that evening, there was a song that came up. It was probably MTV, I forget. But a song by, by Bette Midler. Many of you probably have no idea who that is. Um, and don't worry about it. She wasn't very good anyways. But she sang a song in 1991 uh, called From a Distance. And the song is, it, it's really a fascinating song. Um, don't YouTube it. You'll sing it all day. It's, it's not a good song. Uh, it has, you know, this nice beat to it, but, but the message of the song is this, from a distance, and, and in the chorus it says, God is watching us, God is watching us, God is watching us from a distance. And the idea is he's somewhere out there looking at this globe that's blue and green and looks peaceful and calm, but the truth is the world's on fire, and he is watching from a distance. Uh, my friend... That is bad theology. It's a terrible song. The God of heaven is not watching from a distance. The God of heaven is here. He is near. He knows. He sees. He is fully aware of all of it. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 139. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. You know my down-sitting and my uprising. You understand my thought afar off. You can pass my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. There is not a word in my tongue, but, oh, but lo, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I cannot attain unto it. Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and even the night shall be, even the night shall be light about you, Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and light are both alike to thee. This is our God. He is the all-seeing God. 
He sees it all. He knows it all. And this God does care for you. He is not distant, my friend. He is here. He sees our suffering. B.B. Warfield, the great Princeton theologian, in his essay on the emotional life of our Lord, says this. And remember, our Lord Jesus Christ, God incarnate in the flesh, the emotion which is most frequently attributed to Jesus is compassion. His heart responded with profound pity on the blind and the broken. And may I add, on the marginalized, on the unclean, on the mentally troubled, and on the lost. Jesus knows, and in this flesh, he walked among us. And he knows not just as God knows. He knows as humanity knows. This God who sees knows he entered into our suffering. And for some of us, we read the Gospels, and we think, yeah, I get it. I see his compassion. I see his tenderness. I see his heart breaking for the suffering that he sees. And then we think, now he's gone, and now he's in heaven, and now he's shed his flesh. My brother and sister, this God of ours is still in the flesh. His hands still bear the marks of the scars that he, he had on this earth. And he still feels and knows this God sees your suffering. He knows and he cares. And this God sees our sin. All of it. All of it. Some of us as believers, we, we have this idea that we're so righteous and so holy. And the fact is, you and I know that if there were things that we could get away with, and no one would ever know, no one, not your spouse, not your kids, not the cops, not the government, we would do those things. We would do them if no one ever knew. But my friend, do you know this? Even in that thought, he understands our thoughts afar off. God sees all of it, all of the sin, all of the wickedness, all around. No wonder that this world must be judged. Seven billion people living sinfully away from God. He sees it all. And the last thing to notice this morning is this, that surely this God will take the initiative and act. Habakkuk is crying out, God, where are you? What are you doing? And in verse 5 of our text, God says, I do know, I do see. I see the sin of my people, and I see the sin of the Babylonians, and I will deal with all of them. God in heaven will bring judgment. And for some of you right now, it's just, this is where you check out. Oh yeah, the wrath of God thing. This is exactly why I want nothing to do with Christianity. This is exactly why I don't like the God of the Old Testament. This is exactly why I want nothing to do with religion. He's just this God who's waiting to just fry everyone. But my friend, I submit to you this morning, what you are rejecting is not the God of the Bible. What you're rejecting is a caricature of the God of the Bible. The fact of the matter is, the God of the Bible is most known for his long-suffering and his patience and his kindness. A matter of fact, the first time you ever find the idea of God being, being angry is not in the fall. When our first parents believed it would be better to throw off the reign of God and create their own reality and reject his goodness and his life and his love. We, we don't find his anger there. We don't find it in the fall. We don't find it in the flood. 
A matter of fact, the emotion you find in the flood is that God was grieved in his heart. The first time you ever find God being angry in the Bible is in Exodus chapter 4. And you might be surprised, it's with Moses. And, and so, just to let you know, the long-suffering God, his people are crying out for deliverance, and God says, I will deliver you. I will give you Moses. And so he meets Moses and says, Moses, I will redeem my people. And Moses says, I can't do this. I will not go. And for five times, as God says, I will be with you. I will, I will give you what you need. This is my name. I'll send your brother. Moses says no, 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 no to God as he's revealed himself over and over again. And finally, after the fifth time, the Bible says that the anger of the Lord was stirred up against Moses. And you know what he does? He doesn't zap him. He doesn't strike him dead. He just tells him, here's your brother. Go out and do what I said. That's our God. He is perfect in long-suffering, but he is perfect in anger. And we should understand this. It, could you imagine being in a relationship, maybe a spouse or a best friend, um, and they are completely apathetic? So you're their friend, you're their spouse, and something tragic, something unjust, something cruel happens to you, and they see it, and they experience it, and they say, nah, nah. No emotion, no anger that you were mistreated, no anger that you were wronged. That would be a terrible relationship. They never got upset about anything that was evil, anything that hurt you. Listen to B.B. Warfield again. He says, it would be impossible, therefore, for a moral being to stand in the presence of perceived wrong, indifferent, and unmoved. That's not humanity. We all understand when we see wrong, when we see evil, something ignites within us and it should make us angry. And if it doesn't, you're a sociopath. If you can see someone being bullied or abused or hurt or mistreated and something inside you is not angry and longing for justice, something's wrong with you. You, 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 I'm sure you remember several years ago in Africa, that, that group, uh, what were they called? Bogo Haran or something like that. They went to Christian villages and captured their, their little girls and made them slaves. If you can hear things like that and not be moved, something is wrong with you. And the God of heaven is perfect in long-suffering, but he's also perfect in anger. And when there is injustice, and when there is evil, and when there is wrong, he will act. It would be a contradiction if he didn't get angry. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, in our God, compassion and indignation rise together in his soul. And he says to Habakkuk, I see, I know, and I will judge. My friend, most of us here this morning, we, have, we were born in the 20th century, the bloodiest century ever. And in that century, we had the chance to see what humans are capable of doing to other human beings and continue to do to other human beings. The war, the violence, the rape, the murder, the trafficking, the corporate greed, the abuse, the injustice. 
It goes on and on and on. And we of all people should understand and long for wrongs to be made right for justice. And my friend, the God of heaven is more concerned with his creation than you are. He's more concerned with what his image bearers who are made in his image to reflect his love to him and to others is doing to one another. And there will be a day of reckoning. Could you imagine living in a world where there wasn't? Where people will get away with murder and evil and crime? Listen to Revelation chapter 20, verse number 11. Perhaps the most terrifying scripture in all of the Bible. John gets a vision of the future, and here's what he says. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. And the sea gave up their dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. God has warned all of us. He sees it all, and surely he will act. And my friend, the fact of the matter is, there is a day of reckoning coming. It's coming for every man and every woman, and we will stand before God naked and open, and everything that we have done, the books will be open, and all of our life, and all of what we've done, and all of the motivation behind them will be seen, and we will be judged. We will be judged. God does see and God will act. I think about this and I think about the fact in my heart I long for justice and I want justice. I want all wrongs to be made right. And then I realize, like Sultanichan said, that the line of good and evil runs through every human heart, mine included. And I have to step back and think for a moment wait a minute. How have I contributed to the problems of this world? How have I participated in what is wrong with this world? Through my self-righteousness, through my pride, through my greed, through my lust, through my laziness, through my indifference. And when I see that in my own life, I no longer want justice. I want mercy. I, want, I long for mercy. And the fact of the matter is this. This God of heaven who sees all that surely will act has not left us to our own devices. He loved you and I so much that instead of leaving us on our own, he took upon him flesh. He walked among us. He showed us what it meant to live life in harmony with the creator and with one another. He was perfect in love. And then... In the ultimate act of love and sacrifice, this very God climbed on a cross 
and all of the filth and all of the evil and all of the injustice and all of the crime and all of the greed and all the self-righteousness and pride, all of it was poured upon him. And the very God that you and I must be saved from is the very God who saves us. He bore all of it. He bore it for you and he bore it for me. He died for your sin and for my sin. And on the cross, he died. And he was buried. And three days later, he arose triumphant over death, hell, and the grave. And today, anyone who understands that they deserve justice can cry out for mercy and call upon the name of the Lord, and they will be saved. It's all available through Jesus Christ. And so, in the first five verses of Habakkuk this morning, we observe first that he was not looking to shake off this world. For, for him, that was inconceivable. He wanted his world to be redeemed and made right. He reminds us that suffering is inevitable. My brother and sister, we will suffer. But the glory will pass to the glory. He reminds us that the God of heaven sees, the infinite one sees all of this. He sees our suffering, he sees our pain, he knows and he sees all of the sin. And surely this God will take the initiative and he will act. And my friend this morning, if you don't know him, the God of heaven, you can know him and cry out for mercy. He will save all those who turn to him. And for those of us who do know him this morning, May we live a life that pleases Him, understanding this is the world we live in. This is our time. And we need to be living like kingdom saints and allow that kingdom to sort of just spread over every area of our life. Thankful for the book of Habakkuk. And I believe there's much to gain from this prophet. Let's have a word of prayer this morning. Father, thank you for your kindness and your grace. Thank you for this gathering this morning. Thank you that we have the technology and the ability to preach here and to be heard in other places. And Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, how it speaks to our hearts and lives. Lord, I pray that it would change us. Lord, that you would use this text and these words and this truth to convict, to challenge, to comfort, to encourage, to bring us into a real relationship with the God of heaven. And so, Spirit of God, I pray that you do your work today in the lives of your people. And again, if there's one here this morning who doesn't know you, I pray that they look to the God who is and not reject a caricature of who you are, but see you for your love and your patience, your justice and your holiness. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.